This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hey everybody, this is Shannon Betts. Today's episode is about Scarborough's reading rope. And in this episode, I chat with Tess Craft, who's been a longtime listener of the podcast, about what the reading rope is and where she learned about it and how it has impacted her reading instruction. Mary couldn't make it to this episode, but Tess was a great uh, um, fit for the Reading Teacher's Lounge, and I think you'll really enjoy our chat. Again, my name is Shannon Betts. I've been teaching since 2002. You can find me on Instagram at RDNG Development. I'm also on Twitter at RDNG Development. And my website is readingdevelopment.com. We have a lot of good resources in the show notes as well. And so be sure to check those out to learn more about Scarborough's Reading Rope in addition to what you learned from our chat. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Tess, how are you? I am so great and I am so happy to be here. I've listened to your podcast since the beginning. And so to now be a guest is just like coming full circle. Seriously, season one? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even know that. Like we have met like online because um, we're both in the reading circles uh, through TPT and on Instagram and everything. And then like, I kind of known you and then you told me you'd listen to podcasts, but I didn't know it was from season one. So yeah, I, I got in on the end of season one. Okay. And so, yeah, it's just, and it was like exactly what I needed when I needed it. So, okay. Well, I know you, but let's introduce yourself to the rest of the people in the reading teacher's lounge. Okay. I am Tess. Um, I go by Tess, the crafty teacher on social media. Um, My favorite place to hang out on social media is Instagram. I am a soccer mom. I have three kiddos and I coach my U12 daughters team this year. So that keeps me very busy outside of school where I am a reading specialist and I work with K2 groups on remediating reading. And then every once in a while, the fifth grade teachers will talk me into doing a lit study or remediating an upper grade student that is having trouble with phonics. That's good. Cause we know that there's many of those. I've talked about that many times. So, um, how long have you been teaching? I think I figured out that this is my 21st year in education. So I've been a teacher for a very long time. Um, I've taught in several different school districts because I've moved around the state of Missouri where I'm from and I've subbed due to moves like moving after the school year started and not being able to get a teaching position. And so I've subbed plus I have, um, taught in the classroom. I taught six years in kindergarten, um, two years in first I've taught every grade except for third grade, all the way up to sixth grade in the elementary setting. So I've got a pretty broad scope of literacy in the elementary setting. So that's been beneficial as well. I find that's very helpful 
as a reading specialist, because then you can understand how all the reading skills and standards fit together along that continuum. And then when you get like a fifth grader who's behind, you kind of can figure out pretty easily, okay, they're missing this from kindergarten, they're missing this from first grade, they're missing this from second grade. When you have that broad spectrum of the grade levels, it helps you to understand those lower readers. Yes. And just having studied all the different standards, like knowing how the progression of standards works and how, um, you know, they build on each other and having different skills in each grade level, you really can see how it progresses from K to six or five. We're now K five. Yep. So today we are talking about Scarborough's reading rope, because that is something that you and I have talked a little bit about uh, online in our clubhouse chats and some other uh, chats that we've done. And we are doing a science of reading series of episodes here in season four on the podcast. And so last week we talked with Heidi, uh, dropping knowledge with Heidi, about her. She is so great. She was a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, You have to hear like why she got into the science of reading is because she like lost a bet with her husband. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, we thought like after we kind of introduced science of reading that Scarborough's reading rope would be a really nice uh, next place to start to just kind of go over what are the pieces of reading because uh, Scarborough's reading rope, like I didn't learn about it till honestly, like last year, like I'd been doing the podcast a while before I'd even heard of Scarborough's reading group. And then I just started seeing like really cute 3d images of it on Instagram and everything. And so I'm looking forward to learning from you today about Scarborough's reading group. Yeah. I was very lucky that, um, when I wanted to become a reading specialist at that time in my district, you had to have, um, either the reading specialist endorsement from your original college, or you had to have a master's in reading or literacy. And so I went back and got my master's in literacy. And to be perfectly honest, I looked for the program that would be the fastest and most affordable. And I got incredibly lucky that it was a science of reading based masters. And I had no idea. Um, that's kind of been my entire experience with the science of reading. It, feels very much that that is what I am meant to do because it keeps getting like handed to me. And so I learned about the um, reading rope in my master's. That was when I first experienced it. And, um, and so I was, I had an entire class on phonics, an entire class on phonemic awareness in this master's. And so it was like the master's was actually based on the reading rope because we had classes in all the different strands. Okay. And so it was very interesting. Like our first class was like an overview of reading. And we studied the national panel from 2000, 2001, that kind of brought a lot of light to these things. And so I was very lucky that I just kind of fell into that. And that's when I started to research on my own, the science of reading. That's how I found the podcast. And, um, but, and I found like, oh, there's this reading rope and the simple view of reading and all of those things. And I just, again, kind of lucked into it. And I'm so thankful that I did. Yes. (laughs) And we love that you're sharing your knowledge that you all the stuff that you've learned uh, through your Instagram account and all the other things you're doing in literacy and sharing it with the teachers at your school, because you are a literacy leader and sharing it with your students. Yes. I'm lucky that I um, also am joining our 
ELA curriculum rewrite team this year. So I'm definitely going to be bringing that with force to our students and our district so that they can, um, you know, that, so that all, as many of our students can learn to read as possible. So I did that in 2018 and I rewrote the second grade curriculum for my district. And we have the, we have like that we're the fifth or third biggest district in Georgia. So we're a really big district. And I had to fight the team to put phonics in our second grade curriculum. Nobody wanted to put it in, but I was the one uh, um, designated to type it all. So in it went. (laughs) We are lucky that we have a phonics program right now, but it frustrates me because we call it, we talk about the program, not the subject. So we have, and we use pathways to reading right now, but they say pathways time. I'm like, call it what it is. It's phonics time. The subject is phonics. The program that we use is pathways. Cause I really want teachers to understand that phonics is what we want to teach. Pathways just happens to be how we teach it right now. So I think that's very important. Absolutely. Because if one day y'all switch curriculums, you still want phonics to be a part of that teacher's, you know, routine. Absolutely. And so that's what I'm going to push for. It's phonics time. It's not pathways time. We're always going to teach phonics, but the program we use to teach it might change. Well, speaking of, okay, because we talk mostly about phonics and phonemic awareness here in the teacher's lounge. And so I'm even learning through my knowledge and the reading rope kind of showed me that there's other pieces of reading besides the phonics piece. I just usually start with that because the students that I work with, the struggling students need that first. They need that phonemic awareness. They need that phonics. But what the reading rope is showing us is that there's a lot more pieces to reading than just the decoding piece. And so can you kind of explain to us, like, what are all those different strands you were talking about in your master's program? What are all the different, there's a lot of colors in the reading group. You need to look at the images that we're going to share in our show notes and on our website and in Instagram, if you haven't seen those before to really get a picture, because it's like all these different colors of threads that are separate that then kind of weave together into one rope. And so can you tell us what are those colors? What are the different strands? Okay. So I think you have to start with the simple view of reading where you have um, decoding times language comprehension equals fluent reading and understanding of reading. And so then the reading rope takes those two components and then breaks them down further. And so on the decoding side, you have um, decoding, sight word recognition, and phonological awareness. So basically can you read the words that are written on the page? And that's step one. And without that, you can't go any further on your own. And then you have the other side of the rope. And um, that's where it pulls in your um, background knowledge, vocabulary, literacy knowledge, verbal reasoning, and um, language structure. So it doesn't like leave the decoding behind, but you have that whole other side of why the author wrote what they wrote, how they wrote it, why they chose the words they did, why they chose to put it in that order, things like that, where you can get some of that in the younger grades by being read aloud too. And that's very important, I believe, 
that reading aloud to children and teaching them, you know, to think about what they're reading is very important so that when they do become readers, that they will have those skills already and be able to start doing that on their own independently after they learn how to decode. So that's how I view it. And then they put all of that together and that's where you get your skilled reading. And so I love both sides of the rope. And it's funny because I used to not really care for the phonics side, but having the masters in my training with letters, it's um, really developed that half of the rope, but I used to just absolutely love the other half. Like I love grammar. I love, um, all of the different reading comprehension strategies and things like that. That was always the side of the rope that I really liked and enjoyed. And so, um, it's been really eye opening to me to see how it all actually works together. So. And I'm kind of the opposite. Well, I mean, I do like the reading comprehension strategies and I always did that as a classroom teacher, but not as much as a reading specialist. And then what I've realized in studying these strands is that there's some, even in that kind of comprehension bottom part of the rope, all the kind of blue or greener colors, um, that I know some of them more than others and I spend more time with others. And so like, for example, I'm working a lot with upper grade readers this year. my fifth grade students, my sixth grade students, and my seventh and eighth are actually pretty good at decoding. So I'm doing a little bit with syllabication with them, um, but mostly I'm figuring out that I have to do vocabulary knowledge with them. Like they really need a lot of morphology work and a lot of grammar work. And I'm having to beef up my knowledge about that and, you know, find new activities to do um, to help meet their needs. And so um, I like that this rope kind of gives equal weight to all of those strands as well, because all of those go into fluent, comprehensive reading where the student understands what they've, what they've read. And I think it can also be said while it's the reading rope, but it affects all areas of literacy. So it like, I did not learn to read by phonics. And so at first you would think that wouldn't have affected me, but it comes out in my spelling. I'm a horrible speller. Um, I really struggled to spell things correctly. And so had I had more phonics training, um, cause I only had phonics in K and one, I would probably be a better speller. Um, I did not understand syllables at all until I taught sixth grade about five years ago. And so, um, I feel like also understanding syllables would have made me a better speller. I was a good writer. Like I could get my ideas on paper, but I struggled a lot with the spelling and I'm old. And so we didn't have spell check. (laughs) And so, um, but yeah, so I really feel like the reading rope also helps you be just more literate in general, because if you are better at grammar, you're going to understand how to read better, but also how to write better. And if you have a stronger vocabulary that will help both your comprehension and your writing skills. And that's why it just, it's such a great foundation that helps literacy in all areas. And um, for people who don't know, it's actually the 20th anniversary of the, the when Dr. Harless Scarborough came up with the reading rope. And so in our show notes, we're going to link to some resources that have come out just very recently 
um, celebrating those 20 years of research and that knowledge and kind of going through the different strands and what they mean. And so please check those out in the show notes. But would you educate me a little bit? Like I know what vocabulary knowledge is. I know what book background knowledge is, but I'm, I'm kind of a little bit confused on the difference between the last three strands, which are language structure, literacy knowledge, and verbal reasoning. Okay. So with language structure, that's where you pull in your grammar. Um, I'm a person who I used to love diagramming sentences. And I know that sounds crazy, but I grew up with a mother who was um, a languages expert. She spoke three languages, or she still speaks three languages. And so she's very good at language and understanding how language works. And so I was just raised that way. And um, so when I taught sixth grade, I used Jessica Ivey's um, mentor sentences. And it's not as in depth as diagramming them in the old way that we used to, but it's very good at um, taking sentences from good, authentic, rich children's literature and um, labeling the different parts, talking about what type of sentence it is. And I saw my students reading and writing grow so much that year because they were really getting in there and digging into and working with language. And so I felt like um, that was my confirmation that that strand of the reading rope was so important, the grammar. And my district currently doesn't give a grade for grammar. It's supposed to be embedded in writing. And I always feel like if nobody's giving a grade for it, if we're not being held accountable for it, sometimes we don't teach it. And so that's frustrating to me Um, just as a parent. Like I want my children to understand grammar. And I know when they go to middle school, those teachers are teaching grammar a whole lot. And so the more we can prepare them for that in elementary school, the better. And like there are standards for grammar. And so um, those can be taught, like absolutely taught in the elementary the elementary grades. Um, Then you have the literacy knowledge. And that is where you come into things like the literary, literary elements. So your story elements, the plot map. um, Okay. You're like nonfiction, you know, text elements and things like that. Yes. All those things that are your literary elements. And so, um, just the structure of how different texts are formulated. And so, um, you know, those are important because that can help when students are reading different types of literature, being able to figure out, you know, first nonfiction or fiction, because you're going to approach it a little bit differently. Right. A different purpose. Yeah. Setting a purpose for what you're reading and then just how you read it. And, you know, if you're reading nonfiction, you're going to make sure that you're looking for all those nonfiction text features, the bold headings that can clue you into the main idea, things like that. And then um, the verbal reasoning, I might be wrong because this might go back a little bit to the literary elements, but this is why it's all wound together is because um, I always see the verbal reasoning as where you're thinking about the text. So you're talking it out and you're thinking, what was the author's purpose? What is the theme or the text message? Um, That's where you really come into some of those um, finer details of literature. Like, okay, we've read it. We know what type of text it is. Now, what is the author's purpose? Like, what are they trying to do with this passage? And that's where you come into, you know, the persuade, inform, entertain, 
all of those things. That's like the, to me, that's probably my favorite one. Cause that's, you know, where you get the enjoyment of reading and, you know, falling lo- in love with a good book or an author's style of writing. Um, it's very interesting. I read, um, the 39 clues when I taught fourth grade and they're written by different authors. Mm-hmm. So it's the same series, the same characters, but each book is written by a different author and you, um, can definitely tell that. And there were definitely books I liked better simply based on who was writing them because I liked their style of writing and how they conveyed their message better than different authors. And that was, goes into the verbal reasoning and their style of writing. So that's fascinating. And I guess maybe that brings in the comprehension strategies where you can make those texts of self-connections and things like that. And then also what we talk about so much on the podcast, which is metacognition. So can they think about their own understanding about the text? Yes. And how they connect with the author or things like that. And so that all goes, I guess, in the verbal reasoning strand. Yes. Cause they're thinking about it. Whenever they're thinking about it, it's something that could be talked out loud. Like when Mm -hmm. you're discussing, oh, well, I love this book because of how the author describes things. That's your verbal reasoning. You're talking about the text and yes, you can talk about the structure of the text, but that's kind of like, it's concrete where the um, verbal reasoning is more opinion. You know what okay. I mean? Like and a feel. Opinions and feelings, um, that sort of thing gets pulled into the verbal reasoning because we are, you know, putting our emotions and our background experiences to the text. Like, I don't love Edgar Allan Poe because he's so gloomy. Like, you know, exactly. that's just that it's just a it's just a heavy, gloomy feel of his writing. And that yes. I'm and using my verbal reasoning to figure that out. Yes. And the 39 clues, my favorites were always the one written by Rick Riordan because I love him. I love his style of writing. He's one of my favorite children's authors for the, you know, four through six. And I could tell whenever I was reading one of the 39 clues that was was written by him because I was sucked in immediately and I just loved it and felt like I finished it too fast. That's awesome. So like, even if the author's name wasn't on there, you probably could have figured out that that was him or someone like his style. Yes, definitely. And he, you know, just, he's written so many books and I have read a lot of his books. So that probably helps me identify his style, just having read um, so many of the books by him. So, okay. So why is it important that as reading teachers, we know all of these different strains? Because we need to make sure that we are hitting all of them. Because I feel like we tend to focus in on a particular strand, maybe a strand that's easier for us to teach um, or ones that come more naturally to us. And we have to make sure that we are giving our students all the tools of the reading rope so that they can be the best um, literary students they can be. Um, we see all the time with our ELLs that vocabulary is such a huge deal. Um, or that language structure. Yeah, yeah. And so like vocabulary is huge. And I would argue that in your lower socioeconomic areas, 
their vocabulary is struggling too, not necessarily because of a language difference, but just the amount of words that they're exposed to before they come to school can vary greatly based on your socioeconomic status. And another huge one is the background knowledge. Um, I read the knowledge gap this summer and it was very, very eye-opening to me. And it focuses in a lot on background knowledge. And I like to use the example and they use the example of baseball in the book, but it's even better because my principal is a former baseball player. Like he played at the college level and coached baseball. So he and I could read a passage about baseball. And even though I'm probably a better reader, I mean, I am a better reader than him and he would probably do better on any assessment because he has more background knowledge about baseball than I do. Mm-hmm. And so giving our kids as many background experiences. And that's another reason I feel like reading to them in the, you know, K one, two areas, reading books to them that are on a higher level and bringing in those science and social studies standards, but reading the text to them is very important because then in upper grades, when they're having to read it on their own, having that background knowledge is going to help them comprehend and understand what they're reading more. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up science social studies because that's what I was thinking is we can't neglect those content areas because we think that reading and math are more important because they're going to need them later and they need that background knowledge. Absolutely. And we all know that little kids are sponges. So they Mm -hmm. soak up everything. And so it's, I think, an error on educators part to think that, you know, first graders can't understand, um, you know, the American symbols and why they're the American symbols. And um, I mean, ask any kid about their favorite dinosaur and they can tell you everything they know about that dinosaur. And so we just have to help them connect to our science and social studies standards by reading to them mm-hmm. and you know, creating the concept maps and basically just increasing their background knowledge and connecting it to their lives to help them, you know, be able to do that with science and social studies concepts. Right. Or even you could provide shared reading or very supported guided reading instruction if you have a text that's not at, you know, an accessible level for them. Yes, absolutely. And that's when you're going to pull in those cold colors of the reading rope because the verbal reasoning, you can talk out loud with a group of first graders about a text that you have read and you can reread it with them and, you know, talk about those concepts and things like that. That's building that strand of the rope. Mm Mm-hmm. And circling back to, I'm glad you brought up the, you know, the baseball thing with your principal. I remember when I taught third grade years ago, we were taking this, the students were taking the state test and there was a reading passage about skiing, like downhill snow skiing on our state test in Georgia, where it snows maybe every three years. And there's not really any places to go skiing. And my students, even my high readers, I was just walking around the classroom watching every single one of them get every question wrong, even if they were strong readers, because they could not visualize what downhill snow skiing was like. And so um, when that background knowledge isn't there, comprehension's not there. 
Exactly. Cause we have a passage. Um, it's actually in our Ames web and it's funny because it's a released map data item for our state. And, um, it's about the Erie canal mm. and our kids don't know what a canal is. Right. Like, I mean, and that's a social studies concept in, um, second grade landforms and canals included. And so if our second grade teachers were to teach more of that social studies, teach about the Erie canal, throw in a passage about the Erie canal, show pictures of the Erie canal, or even use the Panama one. And since we know it's a map data, but our kids would have a better foundation to then take that and transfer it to the Erie canal. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause I'm not one to teach to the test, but so much of standardized testing relies on background knowledge. It does for canals or skiing. Um, when I taught kindergarten back in the day, we had to standardize test our kindergartners, which is awful. Wow. But it was a passage, which even the teacher reading it out loud, it was about a sorry. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it right because we didn't get pronunciation guides. It was spelled S-A-R-I. And it was a piece of cloth that the people, the women would wrap around. Oh, in India, the sorry. Yes. And like, they had to answer questions about that. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. How are my kindergartners supposed to have any concept of no way I would have been so confused as a five-year-old about that. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, uh, how is this learning about this? Has it changed your instruction? Like first off, how long have you had, like, when did you learn all this when you were getting your master's? Like how long, how recently? was um, this? So I got my master's in, um, I finished it in 2018, Okay, but, um, I, I learned very quickly, like, cause we are, my first class was like an overview. Cause you had to, um, hold on one second. I'm sorry. I have to plug in my Mac or it's going to die. <laughs> okay. Computer yeah. is plugged in. This is a real life teacher's lounge. Sometimes you have to pause the conversation. <laughs> yes. So I started my master's and my first class was um, an overview of your school or district's reading program based on that national reading panel, survey panel of, um, reading teachers and reading experts. And so that's when I really started to dive into this because phonics and phonemic awareness were so big. And I had been trained in that, um, phonics program pathways, but it, you know, it did not mention the science of reading. Um, and I was doing research for that program, um, for that, program analysis and stumbled upon something that said the science of reading. And that led me down several rabbit holes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I then started to notice that each of my courses were one of the strands of both the national reading panel. And um, I was lucky enough in that research for that class to find Scarborough's reading rope. So I was exposed to it quite quickly and I was noticing how, um, pieces of it went along with that national panel results. And so, and then I noticed that my classes were 
structured like, that way. Structured that way. And I just, and I don't know that my program is now, you know, promoted as a science of reading, but it definitely was. And it's the American College of Education, Masters in Literacy, if anybody is looking for that. Um, well, Lincoln. And it is definitely a good program because um, we had to do case studies and figure out, you know, why students were having trouble reading, give phonics screeners, things like that. But um, it really helped me see how all the pieces fit together to make a fluent, skilled reader. And things that I had noticed here and there, I can remember teaching fourth grade and I had um, a student who the mom asked me to tutor her because she was struggling in reading. And I had had the phonics training just in this program. So I didn't have phonics training. I had training in this program. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember like listening to her read and marking her errors. And then I analyzed them. And this is before I knew a whole lot about reading records because running records, because I had taught kindergarten and you don't do a whole lot of that in kindergarten especially before the common core standards came out. And I remember marking her errors and then writing them all down to see what similarities they had. Yeah. What's their pattern? Yeah. And it became very clear that she didn't know our control valves. And so um, like, I just kept noticing that she missed it every time there was a vowel with an R and I had known cause our, that phonics program had the R apartment that had all the R control vowels together. So I knew what those were because of that. And so I explicitly taught her the R control vowels and the sounds that they made. And then we practiced them on flashcards and then in sentences. And then we went back to a passage and, um, then we went like after six weeks of tutoring and did another check-in because that's just how it was structured. And she had increased a whole bunch. And so then I did it again and found, you know, which, and so I was like analyzing it based on phonics and didn't really realize what I was doing. And so that's kind of just how it's been all along where I've been doing things that were science of reading based and questioning things that weren't and, but not understanding why. So this really brought it all together for me because I can remember people would be like, well, they can't comprehend when I taught fourth grade, they can't comprehend, they don't understand. And I would pull them and having that kindergarten background, it was that they couldn't decode, right? They couldn't read the words. Cause I would say, well, I read the passage out loud to her and she understood and could answer every question. And so I think a lot of the times the upper grades teachers will tell you that they can't comprehend when really it's, they can't decode. Or so it might be those, a vocabulary or background knowledge problem yes. if the decoding is okay. Yeah. Knowing how those pieces all fit together helps figure out why they can't decode or why they can't comprehend mm-hmm. because that's what we get told all the time. They don't understand. They can't comprehend. And so I always say, well, will they understand it if you read it out loud? And if the answer is yes, then it's usually a decoding problem. If it's still no, if they can't understand it when it's read aloud, that's when it's the background knowledge or vocabulary, that sort of thing comes into play. 
So that's just been really, really eye-opening to me and then able to help my teachers understand why kids can't comprehend. So at the end of the reading rope, kind of when you go on the right-hand side of the picture, like all of those strands and all those colors are really tight and woven together, like a rope on a sailing boat or something. But as reading specialists, it seems like what we're talking about is that we almost need to unweave them and understand all of them to try to figure out. I, I say a lot, like I'm looking for the missing pieces in the reading development, looking for those reasons why the reading is breaking down. Yes, because if you think about a climbing rope, I used to climb. And so a climbing rope has lots of little bitty strands that are all woven together. And if you're missing one of those strands, it weakens the rope. Mm-hmm. And they always say not to step on the rope because that can like, you know, add impurity impurities into the rope, like dirt and things like that. And so that can also weaken the rope. So I think when kids are given bad information or we're using, you know, the three queuing system and things like that, it's confusing kids and it's weakening their reading rope. Or even focusing too much on one strand. Like Yes, because you don't want one strand to be really big yeah, and the other strands to be little, that's not going to be a strong rope. So like, like you said, like um, a lot of times grammar is neglected because it's not graded, but if we don't really make that part of that strand strong, then it is going to weaken that rope. If not in that current grade in the further down the line as they develop in their reading. Yes. And that's what we see is that your upper grades teachers, like fifth, sixth, and definitely middle school in my district are very grammar focused, but if they don't have the foundation then it's much harder to figure it out in the upper grades. Like we got to get those nouns and verbs in first grade, adjectives in first grade and build on that so that it, they're not trying to learn all of it at once. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it sounds like, okay, you in that example, the fourth grade kid that you were tutoring, you were doing this a little bit more on instinct and like what you sort of knew, but didn't quite know because you didn't have all the pieces totally understood in your brain. But as you've learned more, like know better, do better. I love that book. Yes. Would you change your approach like with that fourth grader now, or would you still do some of the same things or add more pieces to it? And then also how have you changed your instruction with the other students you work with? Um, now I would have given them a phonics screening because that would have been a lot easier to see where the breakdown was instead of a grade level reading passage. Okay. Cause you could have seen the, the our controlled vowels or yeah, even a spelling inventory. To, it just would have been easier on my part to see. And I would have known what secondary issues there might've been yeah. because there were secondary issues with her. Um, she had a lot of missing phonics concepts, but, um, so I do phonics screeners now um, with my students and that really helps us see. And then we do a very systematic, direct, intentional approach, explicit approach where we find the parts that they're missing. We explicitly teach those. Um, and then students will, and I always say, can they hear it? Can they read it? Can they write it? Mm -hmm. And so can they hear it in phonemic awareness? Can they pull out those sounds? Can they read it? Can they read it on a single flashcard? Can they read it in a sentence? Can they read it in a controlled decodable text? And then we bring in, can they write it? 
And that's when we do like the dictation. And I, again, I start with, I will say the sound and they will write all the spelling patterns they know for that sound. And then I will do words that have those spelling patterns and they will write words with that spelling or that phonics pattern. And then we go to a controlled sentence. So practicing writing it. Mm -hmm. So, so, and that's the warm part of the rope. Like you are still checking for that. I am too. I'm still checking for those decoding phonological awareness, sight recognition pieces first when I'm meeting a reader that is struggling. But then as I'm learning more about this, like I said, I've got some fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth graders who the warm parts of the rope are strong. It's the, it's the cooler colors that they're struggling with. And so I'm actually still searching for a good assessment for some of that vocabulary knowledge and language structure. It's just more experimentation where we're trying classwork and I'm asking them things about sentences and asking things about words and realizing, you know, that there's a lot that we need to do with grammar and morphology, but I wish there was a really good assessment for that. I have not found one yet. I have not found one that I super duper like. Um, I found a lot I don't like. (laughs) Um, Ames Webb has a maze that is supposed to be comprehension and I do not like it. Um, It's probably my least favorite, but yes, my favorite thing to help improve reading comprehension and vocabulary, it kind of helps with all of them is the word morphology, the Greek and Latin roots and the prefixes and suffixes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of is your big kid um, pieces, because if they can learn the meanings of the different prefixes and suffixes, then they can apply that to different words when they see them. The same with the Greek and Latin roots. If you learn a Greek and Latin root, you can guess at a word's meaning based on the Greek or Latin root, and it just really helps improve vocabulary. And that brings well, so that's what I've started doing. Um, in the first episode, Mary recommended the dyslexia and spelling book to me. And then she like handed it to me as we were recording and said, here, you can practice, you can, you can borrow this book. And so I've been reading it since she gave it to me and trying those, some of those things out with my upper grade students and I'm working on a morphology wall. But what I've noticed in those conversations, like, you know, if we're doing act and then react and then reaction or reactionary that brings in the language structure because as you're adding different suffixes it's changing the part of speech yes yes and that's huge and i always had kids who would struggle um when i can remember like having kids use things in a sentence and they'd always be like well can i add an s can i add an ed can i yeah, add because that's yes. all they're used to adding sometimes yeah. And so um, when I started, you know, really focusing on the prefixes and suffixes, some of my higher ones started to be like, well, can I add a prefix? Can I add a suffix? And I was like, yes, starting to get it. And so um, being able to take apart words into base words and prefixes and suffixes is huge for kids, like understanding how language works. And they'd be like, well, but that's not like, and I had some even in sixth grade that couldn't get beyond the base word to figure out how it worked in a sentence. And so that was, especially because like there might be some letters that were cut off when they, you know, from the base, um, this week with my sixth grader, we did the suffix, um, like ist, you know, like scientist, whatever conservationist. And like, she was so, we had so much fun, like coming up with what are all the verbs we can change to people, you know, that people that do this, you know, and if ist didn't work, then we used or, you know, or, or, and, um, 
it, it just becomes really powerful, especially for those English language learners when they can see that all of a sudden, like I've learned a base and now I've learned like 10 or 12 or 20 words in English. Yes. With how I manipulate that base. And they know like that base really well, then they can apply those suffixes and prefixes to it and be able to have much more in their background knowledge to attack that word and figure out what it yeah. means. Yeah. And like, I was reading a grade level text with her and in reading that grade level text, like there were, there were probably 12 words that had prefixes and suffixes and complicated things done to them that I could have chosen um, for teachable moments for her. Like that really is what those upper grade level texts have. And I didn't, I, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm still learning. I didn't realize that because mostly I was kind of, you know, up to level J, like up to just sort of second grade decoding skills with students. And so I'm not as familiar with those upper grade texts to really see what, what the students need to be able to understand those, but that is a lot of what they need. Yes. And I feel like I've got a lot of K1 experience and a lot of four, five, six experience. And so I'm trying to fill in that middle (laughs) with the second and third. And I feel like at least in my building and district, it's the syllables is where we're having our breakdown. And so that to me has been huge because our phonics program is very weak in teaching syllables. And so um, I saw the breakdown with my own daughter and um, I see it all the time with our third graders. Like they were good readers up until second grade. And then all of a sudden in third graders, they're scoring very poorly. Mm -hmm. And it is the multi-syllable words, because if you look at the second grade standards, it's almost all about reading multi-syllable words. Right. It like goes through all the vowel sounds and almost the same scope and sequence as the first grade, but it's in multi-syllable. So it'll be closed syllable, open syllable, magic E, are controlled. Yes. And then yes. all those special final ones, which, you know, there's really like a lot of times those are neglected in phonics programs, like that shun and E-O-U-S and all of those special final endings and things like that. It's like, sometimes people stop at L syllable and then there's nothing else. Well, and our, our program. So therefore our teachers in our district don't teach the six syllable types. They teach how to divide Uh, with like the rabbit rule. They do the rabbit rule and they do like one other rule. So they're only doing like two things with syllables. And I'm like, we have to explicitly teach the six yeah, syllable They've types. got to look at what, what's happening to the vowel and how is the vowel being manipulated. Yes. And I like when the we shut down for the pandemic, my daughter was in second grade. And so I was working a lot with her at home. And I realized that she was a very, very fluent reader as long as it was one syllable. Mm. When she got to a two syllable word, she didn't know what to do. And so luckily being, you know, having just, learned all of this stuff about syllables, I was able to teach her and, um, we practiced over that summer and it was like two weeks into third grade and everything clicked and she became a super fluent reader. And so it was very exciting to see that that was the key. And I feel like, and my daughter's a strong reader. So how are these struggling readers, you know, going to be able to get the code if, we don't give them it explicitly with those syllables. Well, types. and I mean, I had people on my second grade team that said, I'm not going to teach phonics. 
like they should have come to me from first grade knowing how to decode like I'm teaching comprehension I need to get them ready for third grade and I'm like we, we still have phonics standards <laughs> we still have decoding standards there's a lot to do in first grade even if they are on even on second grade even if they are on grade level we have a lot of phonics yes. to teach and then if they are below grade level we have even more phonics to teach um but it's hard to it's hard to convince that, especially because a lot of second grade teachers are former fourth and fifth grade teachers. And so I don't know, they, it's like, they still just, you know, it's, it, it's like phonics and phonemic awareness are the secret knowledge that kindergarten and first grade teachers know and nobody else does. Well, and that's why like my, my letters training was even better than my master's because my master's was kind of like, here's this course on vocabulary but it didn't like give you the why necessarily. It was just, how would you teach vocabulary and how would you teach phonics and how it like phonemic awareness activities and then letters training, you know, is perfect for the science of reading. It is literally the brain science about how children learn to read. And it has the simple view of reading and Scarborough's reading rope. And it is the best training I've ever had on the science of reading and the reading rope and units one through four are very um, phonics based, the red, yellow, orange strands of the rope. Um, But that first chapter on the science of reading and how children learn to read is just phenomenal. And every teacher that teaches reading, I feel like should have that in their courses, in their coursework, and they should be exposed to the reading rope to see how it all works together And then the very last chapter that we did, chapter four, it does um, go into morphology a little bit and the word origins. And so that was really, really good for um, seeing how it all ties together. And so I would recommend the letters training to anybody that can get it. A lot of states are starting to give scholarships for it. So you've just about convinced me to do it. So, oh, you need to do it. It's the best training. And I want units four through eight because, or five through eight, units five through eight are all the vocabulary and dive deeper into the etymology and morphology. And so I'm hoping to do that next year. Sounds really, really cool. It's so good. It's such good training. Well, because what I found is like, I'm just self-taught in all this. And then I just experimented with my own reading students, which isn't the most efficient way to learn about the science of reading. Um, Wouldn't recommend my approach, but I just tried every kind of curriculum out there, tried all these different things, saw what the students couldn't do and found what worked. And what I found worked is everything that the science of reading recommends. So I'm kind of coming to it from a backwards angle where I've already proven all these things to be true in my own teaching. And then now I'm reading the research that also shows it to be true. Definitely. And um, it's very interesting. And the reason I like letters so much is because it has no program agenda. There is no program that they recommend or support or endorse. So it is truly just the why and the training and like retraining your brain to, as a reading teacher, right? Re- yeah, as yeah. a reading teacher to teach children the way that their brain, that science has proven, scientific research has proven that their brains learn to read. So it's just, that's why I love it. It's pure information. <laughs> and then you can take that and bring it back yes. to your own classroom and whatever 
curriculums are mandated in your district or whatever non-negotiables I have, you can kind of pull all those pieces together yes. and they fill even in some have, gaps and put, you do what you need, yes. what the students need to module. do. Yeah. They have a module that kind of helps you evaluate what programs you're using. Okay. Like they say, you know, look at your program for this, look at your program for this. So um, it's very, very helpful in evaluating what you're currently doing, what you, you know, could start adding in to help students. So I love that. Well, we're going to link to that letters, L-E-T-R-S program. Yes, it's without a doubt the best training I've ever had. It's what college should be for teachers, like their Mm -hmm. ELA portions. It should be that training. (laughs) That's what we should have learned. 20 yes. years ago when we first started teaching. Well, I have learned so much from you today, Tess. Thank you so much for explaining about the Scarborough's reading group to me and learning more about it. And I'm actually looking forward to going in the show notes myself and watching some of the videos about celebrating 20 years of Scarborough's rope. Um, Mary's guy, David Kilpatrick leads a section, <laughs> a session about one of the strands uh, I think sight word recognition is the one he does. So, um, yes. And I like, I was uh, fortunate enough that the summer after the pandemic, um, that, uh, Pennsylvania literacy teachers, they put their, um, big summit conference online mm-hmm. and, um, a friend of mine on Instagram sent me the link to register for it. And so I got to um, attend that conference with Kilpatrick and Louisa Motes and all of these amazing people. And I got to watch them present and speak. And it was just, it was another like piece. And it was so funny because I, that was early on still. And I was not quite, hadn't put everything together yet. And, um, I was like, Kilpatrick, Kilpatrick, that name sounds so familiar. And I went back to some of the um, resources I had used in my master's and they were written by him. (laughs) So I was going back and it was like confirming that my master's was based in the science of reading because I had been reading articles from Kilpatrick and Blevins and Motes and didn't know who they were. (laughs) And so then I was watching them speak and that was very exciting to um, kind of come full circle with that too. I do like all the state groups, like the reading leagues for each state. They seem to be hosting like webinars, like all the time with all the experts. And I got to attend one online with Lucy R. Paulson and who created letters and another one with Nancy Young, who did the reading ladder. And it's like a group of just like, you know, a couple hundred of us, you know, sometimes on a Thursday night on this webinar, all chatting and you can ask the experts, the questions that you want to ask them about their research and their best practices. And it's, it's really cool. Um, let's link in the show notes too. like you and I are both in those science of reading Facebook groups. And that's usually where I learn about those things. Yes. Um, just one word of caution is that go into those with an open mind and just take the good from them. Because what I find often is there are some people who are very, very passionate about it. And so they don't always come across as helpful. Whereas I always try to come from the approach that we're all in different places on our Mm -hmm. journey with the science of reading. And if you don't know, it's okay. Because if you are in these groups 
and you are reaching out to me, it's because you're wanting to learn. So I am never going to judge you or say, well, why don't you know this? Because I didn't know, like teachers just don't know. And that's not our fault. And the, the tide is changing, but being positive and helping teachers is far more valuable than making them feel bad that they didn't know something. (laughs) I agree. Wiley Blevins talked about that in our interview with him. And he was saying that we just need to have more nuanced conversations and that the reading wars has gotten so combative and it's my way versus your way. And I, I don't view it that way because like there's some, there's some things about balanced literacy I still like, but like, I've always brought science of reading into balanced literacy. So I don't know what balanced literacy looks like without science of reading. Cause I've never done it that way. So I think my understanding of balanced literacy is very different than what a lot of people says. I've never used the three queuing, you know, like model. Um, and so anyway, yeah, I agree. That's a very good word of caution that we're all on our journey with learning this and that these groups can be good resources I usually use them to find out about these webinars and these conferences that, you know, the big experts are doing. Um, yes. And it's very nice because they have a search tool yes. on the Facebook group. And so you can, if you're curious about something or curious about the program that you use in your district, you can go in there and you can search it and find stuff without having to ask. Cause I feel like when people ask things, that's when sometimes they're met with some not as friendly comments. Um, and so go in and consume as much as you can. Yes. Cause sometimes you're in a district that is still mandating units of study. And so it's not helpful for somebody to say, don't do Lucy Calkins. She's terrible. You know, don't do units of study. It's much more valuable to say, okay, well, how can you bring in Scarborough's reading group and phonics instruction into what you're having to do with units of study? Yes. Because that's the thing. We're not all in a place where we can, teach whatever we want or, um, you know, use what we want. There are still some districts that are requiring you to teach certain things and, um, administrators that don't know any better. And I feel like you definitely get more with the old saying, the more you get more with honey than with vinegar. So um, Um, but you definitely want to always, and approaching your administrators, like saying that you're doing everything wrong is definitely not going to help either. Yeah. That's not going to change minds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like, I've, I feel like I'm, that's how I'm approaching this curriculum rewrite. Like I'm going in with all of this knowledge. I know that our director of elementary education knows a little bit about science of reading. She doesn't know as much as I thought, but she at least knows what it is. And so um, I'm going in with a very um, cautiously cautious approach in that I'm going to just present as much research as I can as to why these things work and let them kind of realize that it works versus me saying, this is what we should do. No one wants to be preached to. And so like I was mentioning earlier that I had those secondary colleagues who didn't want to teach phonics and just sort of refused to. The only thing that won them over is after a couple of years, they saw my reading data and they saw all these non-readers learning to read and they saw my decent readers, you know, scoring off the charts and, okay, what are you doing that I'm not doing? Okay, well, I'm doing this that I've been mentioning 
gently for a while, but now you're really asking. So now you're ready to listen, you know? Yes. Data talks, data, data talks. talks. And, and that's things. why I am lucky that my principal principals in the past have let me do what I want because I get the scores. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, whatever you're doing is working. So keep doing it. Well, that's the other thing too. And like, now that I know more about readers wrote, I could have explained it better. My administrator. So when I was a reading specialist at, um, my previous school, I usually needed to work with the students for two years because the first, I would, and, and I was trying to explain to our principal, but sometimes she just wanted those test scores to be immediately better. She wanted me to do a lot of test prep and a lot of, you know, they, they, they are finding the answer in the text because of this. And, all, and I was like, no, I need to teach them to read first and the test scores will happen the second year. And now that I'm looking at the reading rope, what I'm realizing is that I was doing the... I was doing the warm colors year yep. one and I was doing the cooler colors year two. Yep. And I think if I brought that to her, I would have gotten more buy-in and a little bit more patience from her because when you looked at my test scores with kids who I had in reading specialists in my, in my intervention programs by year two, they were close to grade level, but they weren't after year one. And that really frustrated her. And now I could have shown her the research to approve it. Like I have to do this and then I can do all these other strands. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, well, I think we, we, we brought it back to the reading rope here at the end. Absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you for actually joining us really in the reading teacher's lounge instead of just as a listener, but also as a participant. And we've also seen you on our clubhouse chats as well. So this is not the first time you and I have talked to Tess. Um, so glad to be on though, and just, um, share this because it's, you know, completely changed my teaching and how I approach this and, um, whether you luck into it, whether you, um, have known about it for a long time or whether you're just now starting to hear about it, it's okay. Because as you said earlier, know better, do better. And it's never too late to improve your teaching practice. Well, Mary and I both feel really honored to even be a small piece of, you know, how and why you've changed some of your practice, because that is why we started the podcast, because we wanted to share um, what we knew about teaching reading. So it's really cool to interact with you and find out, you know, where, where you've gone in your journey. Thanks. So where can our listeners find more about you? Okay. So I am Tess the Crafty Teacher on Instagram. That is probably my favorite place to hang out. Um, it's crafty with a K. Cat, crafty with a K, test craft. And then I do have a website that is craftyteacher.com where I blog about reading and um, other things, um, but mostly reading. <laughs> so definitely my website and um, on Instagram. And those both have links to everywhere else you can find me but those are the two that I am the most present and active on. And I would love to connect with any of your listeners on Instagram. They can always DM me. I'm very um, passionate about replying to DMs and having conversations about literacy. Yeah. Cause we're all one big community, aren't we? Yes. Okay. Well, loved having you in the teacher's lounge. This we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much. I love being here. Hey teachers, I wanted to take a time out to tell you about something that I've used and loved over the last year. They're called Daily Harvest. Like me, you might have seen their ads on Instagram. That's how I discovered them. 
I chose them last year because I needed quick and nourishing foods with my busy teacher schedule and also healing from my brain injury to make sure that I got good nourishing food quickly. I've been ordering once a month now for over the last year and I just love their smoothies, oat bowls, and flatbreads. They also have tr treats like bites. Um, I get the ones that taste like chocolate chip cookie dough. They have ice cream scoops. I love the salted caramel. And then there's a special chaga and chocolate latte that's hot chocolate with um, reishi and chaga mushrooms that really helps me calm down in the afternoon. I will prepare the smoothies and oat bowls to take with me to school in the mornings and then I will bring the soups and harvest bowls that they offer to school with me and heat them up in my hot logic mini oven in my room and so that they are hot and ready for me by lunchtime. I love that they add vegetables in everything that they serve even things like smoothies that you think would only have fruit have vegetables in them, and so does the ice cream. My favorites are the carrot and cinnamon smoothie, which tastes like carrot cake, the squash and chai oat bowl, which tastes like pumpkin spice bread, pear and arugula flatbread, and the lentil and tomato harvest bowl. Those are always in every order that I get from them. Check them out at the referral link in our show notes to get $35 off your first box. Or if you want to DM us at Instagram, Facebook, or email us at readingteacherslounge at gmail.com, we'd be happy to send you the savings code link. I love that they have an easy-to-use app where you can change your selections or pause shipments. I'm never caught by surprise when an order is coming. Because of that, they email you regularly as well. I also love that their packaging, most of it is recyclable or compostable, so I'm not wasting a lot of materials. Try Davy Harvest. I promise your body will thank you.